Would you turn with me in God's holy word to 1 Timothy chapters 3 and 4? Continue in our study of this first pastoral epistle written to Timothy as he serves the congregations in Ephesus. And yet a letter that apparently is being read in the assembly of the whole congregation. Apostle Paul expecting that all the brothers and sisters will hear these words. We want to look this morning and give our attention specifically to verses 11 through 16, the last verses of chapter 4. But let's pick up God's word at 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. The apostle writes, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And here's our sermon text, verse 11. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself 
and those who hear you. God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing, shall we? Oh, Father in heaven, you have given to us a rich and a comprehensive word. We take up a portion of it and pray that you would bless to our souls all the grains of truth that we gather from your word. Place them deep within. Let them take deep root. Water them by your spirit. Ripen them, Lord, with the rays of your favor. And grant, Lord, a harvest to your glory and praise forever, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, the words that we were at the beginning there are really the key to this whole section, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. Paul says he's writing to Timothy so that Timothy will know how he ought to conduct himself in the house of God. We each have preferences for our own house, maybe house rules, the way we want things to go in our house. Maybe we relax them when guests come over, but our children know our preferences. Well, the Apostle Paul is giving to us God's desires for God's house. The church is the house of God. And because God is glorious and because we are here as as recipients of grace, not deserving a place. We want to honor God in God's house. And today God is telling us what kind of ministry he wants to fill his house with. I think I can tell you right off the bat this morning that the text today is actually probably more challenging for ministers than for congregation. This is one of the benefits of preaching through a book of the Bible is that the minister doesn't get to choose out his favorite text. He has to preach every text. So when it comes to a text that's about what ministers are supposed to do, he doesn't get to skip it over, but has to preach about the duties of a minister. But, of course, there's instruction for all of us as God's people here. As the Lord tells us, the kind of ministry that we should desire, the ministry that we should seek. And so... We have to give attention to that because as we noted back in chapter 3 when we looked at those qualifications for elders and deacons, Satan wants us to embrace a worldly standard for office bearers. And so if we're choosing out elders and deacons, we could operate by, by worldly criteria, choosing only those who are financially successful or, or those who are good-looking or well-dressed or those who have a charismatic personality. But those aren't the criteria that God sets down for office bearers. And the same thing with regard to, to the ministry in the church. We could embrace a worldly standard of ministry, right? In fact, there are many who have done that, who have, have wanted a certain kind of ministry that isn't the one described here in our text. And so we come to God's word and say, Lord, what kind of a ministry pleases you? What have you said will be a blessing to us? And as we come to God's word, the Lord in these verses sets before us a portrait of faithful ministry. It involves three things. Paul tells Timothy, number one, to minister the God-breathed word. Number two, to model Christ-like godliness. And number three, to maintain his spirit-energized devotion. Well, first of all, Timothy is to minister the God-breathed word. The chapter divisions in the Bible are are the invention of of editors. And so we can take verse 11 with verse 12. I think that's where it belongs. And verse 11 says, now these things command and teach. Paul's been telling Timothy all these things, and now he urges him, command these things, teach these things, be one who ministers the word that's been entrusted to you. Paul had warned at chapter 1, verse 1, that 
Some are going to depart from the faith and, and give their attention to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There's untruth. But you teach these things, these truths. And if you jump down to verse 13, the apostle expounds on that. He says, till I come, give attention to readings, or reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Think about those three things for a moment. Reading. The word that's used here doesn't just mean private reading. It's a word that's used to describe public reading, the reading aloud of, of testaments, of of appeals, of, of wills. It's a word that's used to talk about the reading aloud of Scripture. And that's what is being commanded here, I think. It was the practice in the synagogue. Remember in Luke 4, Jesus comes in the synagogue, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads the word before he proclaims the word. The reading of God's word pleases God. The reading of God's word is not merely something we have to do to get out of the way before we can hear a sermon. The reading of God's word brings glory to God. And it builds up the church. Some have pointed out the oddity that in Bible-believing churches over the past few decades, there's been a diminished place for the reading of Scripture in the worship service. In fact, historically, and even still in many churches today, it's required that, that there be an Old Testament reading, read a section, a chapter of the Old Testament, and a New Testament reading, but that there be a significant part of the worship service in which we read God's Word. Timothy's to read the Word. He's got the, the law, and the prophets, the Psalms. He's got the Old Testament. And, and Paul says at different points, including in Colossians 4.16, that the letters he's writing, he wants them read in the church. He seems to recognize that, that these are the Scriptures now, the New Testament Scriptures. The Apostle Paul was an instrument of revelation, but Timothy is not. He's not to seek new revelation. He's certainly not to invent new revelation. He's to preach the word that's been revealed. It's remarkable, I think, as you read through the pastoral epistle of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, that you see the Apostle Paul setting a trajectory for the church beyond the apostolic age, when the apostles have died. And in these pastoral epistles now, you see the way it's going to go in the church, that it's not a ministry of revelation, there's not a calling to engage prophesying or tongue speaking or gifts of healing. Those were all revelatory gifts. But when the whole of revelation is almost in the hand of the church, the, the canon of scripture is coming to its completion. The calling of the church now is to take that revelation and to read it and to preach it. But of course, you have to believe it's God's revelation. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, that next letter, Paul will tell Timothy, all scriptures God breathed. And then he will say, preach the word. And that goes together, of course. If you don't believe it's God's word, then it won't have a big place in your life. I read this past week a story of a young man who was studying at one of the best seminaries. He was a bright man. He had very promising in terms of his gifts. It looked like he would soon be an excellent minister of Christ Jesus. And then he, he suddenly quit his seminary studies, wasn't interested anymore, gave it all up. And when it was investigated as to the reason, they discovered he was no longer sure about the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, wasn't sure that this is the infallible Word of God. 
had a similar experience on the airplane last week. Sat next to a couple who had both converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. One from Protestantism, one from Roman Catholicism. And they were all excited about the Eastern Orthodox Church. They knew all this church history and all these things. And as we talked, they seemed confused. And I asked them, what do you believe salvation is? And they said, well, Jesus died to give us an example. I said, well, we believe Jesus died to save us from sin and from the wrath of God. And one of them said, where does it say that in the Bible? And I looked at them perplexed. And then a little later, another issue. And I pointed out what the Bible said, and it seemed to be news to them. And then it came out, they didn't believe that this is the inerrant, infallible word of God, but this is written by men, and is one angle on the matter. You see? Timothy is to be assured that what he has is the revelation of God. It's God's word. It's infallible. He is to read it, and he is to preach it. Until I come, Paul says, until I arrive in Ephesus, you give attention to reading. Read that God-breathed word. Read it openly. Read it with reverence. Read it with awe. Read it as it is, the word, not of men, but of God. And then he tells them to exhort with that word. Until I come, give attention to reading, also to exhortation. Isn't it interesting that God wants more than just to have his word read? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It's occurred to me at times. I guess really when I was going through a seminar, I wondered at some points, what? why do we make sermons? Sermons are, are, are fallible. Sermons are the word of men. Why don't we just read the word of God? Some people say, you know, the book of Hebrews is really a sermon. Why don't we just read the God-breathed sermon? Why don't we just read the scriptures and call it good? Why muddy it up with having a man now try to preach the word? But the reason is because God commands it. God commands that the word not only be read, but that the congregation be exhorted. Exhortation is an appeal to the mind, an appeal to the heart, an appeal to the conscience. And and God wants... He wants ministers to press the word, to declare the word, to urge the congregation, to appeal to their hearts, to convict of conscience by the Spirit's working. James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but not a doer. Don't look in the mirror and go home and forget what you look like. But let it be impressed upon you. Exhortation is warning, it's encouragement, it's counsel. Timothy's to exhort, but then thirdly, he's... To teach. In the New King James, they translate it as doctrine. Doctrine is teaching, but I think he's talking about the activity of teaching here. He is to read the word, he's to exhort the word, he's to teach the word. It's not enough just to have appeals to the mind and heart without a foundation. All Christian appeals are founded upon a body of truth. A body of truth. We just mark the close of an education season. But why have an education season? It's because there are truths to be learned, things to be known about who God is, about what sin is, about how God made the world, about who we are, about who Christ is. Paul demands Timothy of a doctrinal ministry, a teaching ministry. Ignorance brings eternal death, but knowledge leads to life. In Hosea chapter 4, 
We read, For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. And then God rebukes the priests, because it was the priest's job in the Old Testament to be the ordinary teachers. Prophets were not the ordinary teachers. Prophets came when God's people didn't obey the word that was taught to them. And the prophets come as accusers, as prosecuting attorneys. But the normal teachers of the law were the priests. And they were failing. And so God says in Hosea 4, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being priest for me, because you have forgotten the law of your God. Derek Kidner makes an interesting point in his commentary on Hosea 4. He says, you know, in the Old Testament days, in the other religions outside of Israel, the secrets of the religion, the pagan religion, were carefully guarded. They belonged to the priest to keep them, to hide them, to conceal them. But in Israel... The priests are called to proclaim the truth. The people are not expected to worship simply in some mechanical way, but God would appeal to every mind and every heart of every one of his people. He wants his knowledge taught so that his people can enter in knowing the truth of God. Kidner writes, The true faith of the Old Testament was a revelation addressed to every mind and conscience, making wise the simple. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? To be made in God's image is to be made with true knowledge. And the way God is restoring us to his image is by teaching us the truth. The truth. To know who God is is the most practical thing in all of the world. So whenever people say, you know, doctrine, well, that doesn't affect life, or doctrine, that doesn't matter. Doctrine is teaching. And knowledge of God affects everything. If you know who God is, it changes the course of your life. So Timothy is commanded to read the word, to exhort the word, to teach the word. It's not to stray from that word. And this, then, is what we are to require of ministers today, is that they minister God's word. The world standard here would be to invite ministers to minister themselves, to minister their personality, to minister the stories of their life, to to minister the the latest psychological trends or self-help books. But what God wants in his house is the ministry of his word, his word. The elders are to see to it that God's word is preached, that the Holy Scriptures are carefully expounded, declared, and applied. And we, we can be grateful, brothers and sisters, for our heritage as Reformed believers, where it's been understood that, that ministers are to be devoted to this work. And for that reason, our churches have been, have been great, haven't they, in giving ministers time to study the word, not Again, adopting the world's mentality and saying the the minister should be the CEO who administers all the programs. But they've said, no, the minister should be in his study, studying the word. He should know what the text says. Our churches have been good at supporting men to go to seminary. This congregation supported me to go to seminary 
to have time to study. And it's a great blessing. It's a great blessing to have time to labor in the word before you're asked to teach God's word. We can rejoice in that and give thanks to God for that understanding. Toward that end, then we are to pray. We're to pray that the word be preached. And towards that end, we're to come with eagerness to hear the word. If Timothy's supposed to do all these things, read the word, exhort, teach, the expectation is that there's going to be somebody there listening. Paul isn't just setting Timothy up in a pulpit in an empty building, but that the saints would attend to that with eagerness. God's word is being read. God's word is being taught. God is there. Let us go and be near to God. So minister the God-breathed word. That's the first item of faithful ministry. The second one is to model Christ-like godliness. As you look at the arrangement of the text, it's interesting that the two commands, verse 11 and 13, to, to teach the word, are wrapped around verse 12, where we read, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. If Timothy's to teach on the left and on the right, if the Ephesians listening were to scratch through that teaching and get beyond the teaching to the man who is doing the teaching, they are to find not that he's dressed in a costume of the word, but that he lives by the word that's affected his own life. He's responsive to the word himself, shaped by it. Paul's concerned that Timothy might be despised because he's young. Now, commentators suggest that he's in his 30s, probably. If it's been about 12 years since Timothy began ministering with Paul, and if he had been somewhere between 22 and 27 years of age when he was ordained, then now he's in his 30s, maybe in his late 30s. Which might not sound super young to us, I guess it depends how old you are. But it certainly doesn't sound as young as ministers fresh out of seminary at age 25. But it is young. Because the elders that Timothy has some authority over. Remember, Timothy's not just an ordinary pastor. He's the representative of the Apostle Paul. And he is to, in a sense, preside over all that's going on in Ephesus and around there. Well, when there's elders that are 10, 20, 30 years older than Timothy, he looks pretty young. But Paul says... Don't let anyone despise your youth. And the way to overcome and anyone would look down on Timothy for being young is not that Timothy now should assert his authority and say, hey, I studied with the Apostle Paul, or hey, I'm very gifted. But instead, Paul says, you should live out the word. You should live out the word that you preach. You should manifest godliness in your own life. You should prove to be a pattern of Christ-likeness. You should give no offense to the congregation in terms of anything you do, but that your life should be wholly dedicated to the Lord. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in his own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And then he lists a bunch of things, some of the same things that he tells Timothy here, some of the same areas. And so the idea is this, that, that those who bring the word are to commend the word by themselves living according to that word. Peter said the same thing to elders, right? He, he told them not to be lords over the flock, but to set an example to the sheep. 
And so it's true for every office bearer. It's also true for each one of us in life. It's, of course, true that that a congregation will struggle to follow any office bearer who's not a complete man, who's just wearing a mask at church. But, you know, there's something here for all of us in whatever ministry God has given to us. Parents who talk the talk but don't walk the walk, well, they have children who know that, right? Who know that? When it comes to bearing witness at work, if we, if we try to preach a gospel of grace, but we're not a gracious person, or if we are strong about being saved by the merit of Christ alone, but we're full of boasting and arrogance, then we're, we're undermining the word that we would seek to bring. Whatever ministry the Lord's given you as a parent, as a fellow congregational member, what, as an as a evangelist in this world, the way to open the door to others, that others could receive you, is yourself to live a godly life. So Paul tells Timothy, you, you are to live in holiness. You are to let no one look down on you because you're young, but to be an example to the believers in word and in conduct. Word and deed. What you say and how you live. And then in love. May be clear that you love the Lord and that you give yourself to others in a self-sacrificial way, putting others before yourself and spirit and in faith may be clear to all that you live by the grace of God that you depend on him not your gifts may you live in purity he says a self-control a, a life that matches God's law in this way you gain a hearing and overcome those who would despise you and so the Christian life is not one that's compartmentalized it's not just be a Christian at church put on the religious garb for an hour, but it's a whole life consecrated to God and shaped by the word of God in all places. Because otherwise, a lot of truth can be torn down by a failure to live it out. And as we say, actions speak louder than words. And so it says in the ordination form for elders and deacons, to fill such a sacred office worthily, the deacons as well as the elders should set an example of godliness in their personal life, in their home life, and in their relations with their fellow men. And in the calling for elders, it says that they should have concern for all their fellow office bearers, having particular regard to the doctrine and conduct of the minister of the word. All of us seeking to live holy lives and by that also then the truth being supported, not undermined, but the truth being held out by being lived out. And there's a great blessing that, isn't it, for all who've grown up in Christian homes. What a blessing to see the gospel materialize in a life. You can hear the word read, but when you see it lived out before your eyes, what a, what a wonderful help that is. When I was in college, a guy came into the dorm room. He's on our hall, but he came back to the hall, and he told me he just asked the, uh, this is how I remember it, he just asked the pastor at the church we were attending if he could live in his house for the summer because he, he wanted to see a Christian marriage. He grew up without a father. Now he, he wanted to watch their marriage. I remember it because it was such a, Big request, I thought. But, you know, I commend 
my brother, in thinking that, that many things can be taught, but some things might be better caught. And what a blessing to see an example of godliness. Office bearers are to be that, but we're all to be that. So the calling is to model Christ-like godliness. Finally, Paul tells Timothy not just to minister the word, not just to model godliness, but to maintain his spirit-energized devotion. Verses 14 through 16 seem consumed with the idea of perseverance and pressing on. And boys and girls, all you who were just up here a little while ago, I don't know if you learned this secret in your Sunday school classes this past year, but let me let you in on a little secret. The really hard thing about being a Christian is not just being a Christian today, but being a Christian tomorrow and the next day. You see, you can, you can say, I heard this sermon, I'm going to obey my mom and dad, I'm going to not grumble against them or talk back to them, and you, and you do really good today, but then what about tomorrow? And what about the next day? See, the difficult part of being a Christian is, is sticking with it. That's what perseverance means. It means to stick with it, to keep going. And here's another little secret. It's not something that comes naturally for mom and dad or grandpa or grandma either. They don't get up every morning and think, you know, I feel like a great Christian. All I want to do is obey God. They get up and they think, boy, I'm grumpy. I need to put on cheerfulness. Boy, I'm afraid I need to trust in the promises. Boy, I just said that. That wasn't kind. I need to ask for forgiveness. And they have to work at perseverance. Not only is it difficult for moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas, it's difficult for elders and deacons and ministers. And there are a lot of those in office who start out well with enthusiasm, but who grow weary in the task and negligent in the duty, or who even fall into scandalous sin. The list of ministers I know who have fallen into scandalous sin grows as I get older, and it's grievous. Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. What urgency the Apostle Paul has in his voice as he calls Timothy to stick with it, to press on, to guard himself. He, verse 14, is not to be careless in his exercise of the gift. In fact, Paul brings Timothy back to apparently the day of his ordination service. Timothy, do you recall how it went? Somebody prophesied by the Spirit of God and declared Timothy to be set apart to God's service or declared what ministry Timothy would have. The eldership came up, Paul too, and they laid hands on Timothy, showing that he's authorized to serve. Paul, you see, is trying to awaken in Timothy the reality of what happened. You were set apart by the Lord. Don't become lazy. Don't give up if no one's listening. Don't shrink back if some are resisting. Don't give place to sinful desires in your heart. 
He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, to fan it into flame. It's interesting that spiritual gifts, it's really remarkable, isn't it? Spiritual gifts are not just some deposit, you know, something that falls under our heads out of heaven and then that's it. You got it or you don't got it. But spiritual gifts are to be cultivated. They're to be used. They're to be exercised. We're not to be careless with them. That's instructive for every believer. And then he tells Timothy in verse 15, how to stir up that gift. Well, meditate on the things I've been teaching you. Give yourself entirely to them so your progress will be evident to all. Don't treat your ministry as something you do on the side. Be engrossed with it. Be devoted to it. Be absorbed in it. In such a way that everyone sees your progress. Isn't that remarkable? Paul expects that the congregation, the saints, and maybe even the world will watch and see Timothy growing as a minister and growing as a Christian. When I first entered the ministry, we had two elders, and I would go on family visits with the, with the brothers, and one of them would always, when he'd ask people how they're growing spiritually, if they, if they hesitate or so they didn't know if they'd grown spiritually in the past year, then he would say to them, you're always growing or you're sliding backward. There's no standing still in the Christian life. If you're not growing, then you're sliding back. That's the idea. Timothy, you have to move forward. And then Paul ends it with that profound statement, verse 16, Take heed to yourself and to the teaching. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. There's a lot of other things that seem to appeal to our fleshly nature more than the reading of God's word and the exhorting of God's word and the teaching of God's word. And there's a lot of things that we might be more attracted to than, than merely a holy life of a man. I mean, you can think of the kinds of things that, that make People magazine or come up on the computer screen, the things that attract us, the interesting things, the things that excite us. And then you look around today sometimes at churches where some of those kinds of things now come into God's house. And people gather as those who are hungry for what? Hungry for human personality? Hungry for audio-visual excitement? Hungry for attracted to what? But God says, Timothy, if you do these things, it will save you and it will save those who hear you. Which is a remarkable thing. Which causes us to, calls us to humble our hearts before the Lord and to ask, is the ministry that God says is life-saving, the ministry through which salvation comes, is that the kind of ministry that we seek? It's as easy probably for ministers to get bored with the word as it is for the congregation. But when we do that, we dishonor God, don't we? 
and we jeopardize our own salvation. Our calling is to attend to this, to the word of the Lord, because through his word, Christ is giving himself to us. So God is teaching us what we ought to pray for as a church, what we should encourage in men training for the ministry, what we should hold up to our children as they grow up and wonder where they're going to live in the world, what kind of a church they will seek. Here, here God says, here's a portrait of faithful, life-giving ministry. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We pray you give us the grace to believe the things you've spoken and to escape all the pitfalls that Satan has laid for us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. Thank you for the abundance of revelation. Thank you for the Lord's days which may gather around your word. Make it, Lord, life to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.